What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Critical Mass Podcast, the podcast brought to you by the Center for Social Impact at UVU. I'm Hannah, and I'm this year's host. Now, in physics, the term critical mass refers to the minimum amount of material needed to spark a chemical reaction. In social impact language, we use the term critical mass to talk about the minimum number of people we need in order to create social change, or even that initial protest or event that sparks the social movement. Couple little disclaimers before the good bits of the pod. Any opinions expressed by our interviewees don't necessarily reflect the opinions or values of the Center for Social Impact or of UVU. In honor of National Native American Heritage Month, which runs in the states from November 1st to November 30th, the pod has decided to highlight the efforts of some of our local Native students and share their stories of survivance, which is a combination of both survival and resistance, and their responses to settler colonialism. Now, it's called Native American Heritage Month, but a lot of people call it Indigenous Heritage Month, making the mistake thinking that the two terms are interchangeable. But really, the term Indigenous is sort of a catch-all term meant to describe about 370 million Indigenous peoples spread across 70 countries worldwide, who, according to the UN, quote, inhabited a country or geographic region at the time when people of different cultures or ethnic origins arrived, and those new arrivals later became dominant through conquest, occupation, settlement, or other means. Now, something cool about the term indigenous is that it can be coalitional, basically allowing marginalized indigenous groups across the world to identify with one another and then unite and organize and shit, right? But still, sometimes the term can also have the unfortunate effect of turning indigenous people into a monolith, as though they all experience social structures and systems in the same ways, and that they all got the same cultures and values, which is just not true. Each indigenous culture is unique and distinct, even if it shares many similarities with other cultures. Now, broad as it is, the term indigenous cannot replace some of the other more localized terms groups might prefer to use. Native American is one of the more common terms used to refer broadly to people who lived in the Americas before English, French, and Spanish colonization. American Indian, or just Indian, is still used by some individuals and nations, and while a lot of people still think of the term as a misnomer or a slur, a lot of groups and activists have reclaimed the term, now using it to self-identify. Importantly, in Canada and the United States, the term Indian has a political and legal definition and use. When referring to the politically identified Identified nations of indigenous peoples will use the term Indian tribes, since that's the politically relevant term. Now, First Nations is another term you might hear, and this one is mostly used by the Aboriginal people of Canada. Even the term Aboriginal is another one, which is commonly used to refer to the indigenous peoples of Australia, and that term just means original inhabitant in Latin. Now, the last term I want to bring up is the term native, which is the one I'm going to be using the most in this episode. The word native is usually an adjective that describes a thing, like a native plant or a native traditions, but here it's being used as a noun because it's describing a group or individual. Now, the reason the pod has decided to use this term over others is because it's how our interviewees chose to self-identify. And that's really the key here, is self-identification. For one group, the term indigenous or native might be preferred, or it might be like super disrespectful. The big thing to remember here is that instead of just trying to define millions of people in a way that's convenient or easy for you, it's better to ask or even better to just listen and respect the terms people use to describe themselves. Now, just to give a bit of background to all of this, in Utah, there are eight federally recognized Indian tribes. They are the Confederated Tribes of Goshu Indians, the Navajo, the Northern Ute Tribe, the Northwestern Band of Shoshone, Paiute Indian Tribe of Utah, the San Juan Southern Paiute, the Skull Valley Band of Goshu, and the White Mesa Band of the Ute Mountain Ute. Now, federal recognition means that theoretically these eight tribes have sovereign powers, meaning that ideally they are legally and politically their own nation with the right to self-determination and control of their own land. And they get that federal recognition through treaties and other federal or administrative actions. In reality, though, those treaties aren't always respected. Plus, tribal sovereignty is constantly threatened and limited by intervention from the U.S. government as well as corporate entities who seek to take the land rightfully protected by indigenous tribes for this or that reason. Now, in addition to the eight federally recognized tribes, there's a ton of tribes here in Utah that are not federally recognized. And while those tribes can form tribal organizations, they lack many important political and legal protections, especially ones that have to do with land. But the shitty thing here is that since it's all based off of treaties, any tribe that didn't form some kind of treaty with settler colonials back in the day just kind of has to deal with having no political right to their ancestral lands now. And it's all kind of arbitrary. 
just as some tribes aren't federally recognized, some people aren't legally recognized as native either. Now, the way a person's native identity is legally defined was created by the U.S. colonial government, and historically that definition was based in assessing people based off of how quote-unquote Indian they looked. Now, thinking about membership and authenticity in that way completely ignores the traditions of tribal membership actually practiced within different native communities. Now, that whole process is called blood quantum and was used by settler colonials to keep tribal membership down and keep land in non-native hands by making a lot of privileges and protections contingent on being at least 50% native. Now, blood quantum is unique to North American colonization and therefore only applies to Native Americans. Today, the federal government, and specifically the Department of the Interior, issue what is called a Certified Degree of Indian Blood, which is a card similar to an ID card that says what percentage of Indian blood a person's got. The information on that card can affect your identity, your relationships, and whether or not you or your children can become a citizen of your tribe, and therefore whether or not you can qualify to live on or own indigenous protected land. Now, this means that someone can be a part of a tribe, fall in love, have children, and those children might not qualify for membership in that tribe, even if they grow up surrounded by other tribal members, become educated in the culture, and speak the language and all that. Okay, so maybe this is a little bit abstract, but I got another example that might help y'all understand how blood quantum is connected to racism. During Jim Crow, the one-drop rule worked by measuring the amount of, quote, black blood that could be assigned to a person through their lineage. This ensured that every person who had at least one drop, that is, had one black person in their ancestry, could be considered black and therefore could be controlled under discriminatory laws and even enslaved. So here we got one version of blood quantum that says if you got one drop of black blood, then you're legally considered black, meaning you can't own land and could be enslaved. Then on the other, blood quantum says that if somebody was less than 50% native, then they got no rights to their own land. In that way, blood quantum gets used in whatever way most benefits the settler colonials, either making more free labor by creating more enslaved people or getting more land by making stricter and stricter definitions of what qualifies as native enough to own land. As blatantly oppressive as this may seem, some tribal governments did end up adopting their own versions of blood quantum to determine who gets to own land and stuff, which is why it's so hard to disband the whole system of it now. All that to say, it's pretty complicated. Now, as you can probably tell at this point, there's no way one episode of this or any other podcast could really represent the full spectrum of indigenous peoples. And we don't really want to try, because trying would be pretty disrespectful. Instead, we worked closely with a researcher on the pod, Ariana Tapahe, who is a member of the Diné people, also known as the Navajo tribe, to highlight the perspectives of some local Diné people. So to tell the story of how we all started working on this episode, I got to choose a place to start. So on campus, we got a student-led group called the Native Wolverine Association, which is a group here at UVU that promotes cultural awareness of Native American students on campus by creating a safe space for students to engage with each other in cultural activities, fundraising, event planning, and a bunch of other stuff. They also organize the UVU NWA powwow, which raises funds for Native American student scholarships at UVU and brings in visitors from surrounding Native communities, giving UVU students an opportunity to engage across cultures. Earlier this month, in honor of Native American Heritage Month, the NWA helped put on an event called Native American Storytelling Night. This is a free event that's hosted every year to share traditional stories and help build community with one another. Now, I was at this event attending like as a private citizen. So I was listening to these dope stories and this guy comes on and tells a story and starts to play this dope music on his flute. And it was beautiful. So I broke out my phone and I started to record. And then after all that, I found out this performer was a guy named Ty Allison. And I got his permission to share that recording with y'all here. But to give a bit of context to this recording, before beginning to play, Ty told the story about the origins of the Native American flute. Dope as I was, my dumbass didn't think to start recording till like halfway through it. So it's a bit cut off, but I left as much of the story as I could in the clip so y'all could hear as much as possible. So sad, yet so full of emotion. After that, the wind died down, and he picked up this new instrument, and he knew what he had to do. He went back to his village, and there he stood outside of the home of this beautiful young woman. And with his new instrument, 
He played many songs and many melodies for her. Finally, when he was done, she came out and she greeted him. And that's how the story ends. Traditionally speaking, the Native American flute was used for courting purposes. If a young man in his village liked a young woman, he'd play his flute for her. And if she liked his song, she'd come out and greet him. And if not, well, I suppose she sent her father out. <laughs> Tonight I want to share with you the love that I have for this instrument. My goal here is to not win any hearts over. I may get in trouble for that. But I just want to share with you my love that I have for this instrument, the Native American flute. Thank you. Now that was a really sick event. They had these really cute little hoop dancers from Nebo Elementary and I remember crying a little bit. It was all just like really beautiful. The whole thing though, it got me thinking about stories. Now stories carry a lot of cultural significance and not just for indigenous peoples. All cultures tell stories about the world and like how it works and these stories shape cultural attitudes for better or for worse. For indigenous cultures in particular though, oral traditions are particularly important. Traumatic and culturally genocidal events like boarding schools destroy a lot of access to cultural knowledge, but stories are how a culture is able to regenerate itself. It's how we respect and how we remember and it's how we're able to access and pass down traditions and rituals and knowledge from elders and like a bunch of other stuff. It's really beautiful and useful, but like anything important and beautiful, it can also be weaponized. So we hear stories all the time, but we don't always think about how they came to us. And too often there are bigger structures and systems at play that determine which stories get told and which ones don't. So some stories are super common and canonized in some spaces, but not in others. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that in this next clip. Now, if y'all remember Ari, our Deneh researcher, well, her and her brother Ethan both grew up on the Deneh Reservation in Window Rock, Arizona, but their cousin Dion didn't. So we got them all together for a discussion or like reflection on their shared and separate experiences. So y'all better listen to them introduce themselves and then talk a bit about what sorts of stories get told or not told in certain spaces. (laughs) 
That's a way of uh, pronouncing uh, or introducing ourselves in Navajo. I'm Ethan. I'm from Windrock, Arizona, and I go to school at UVU here. Hi, my name is Deanna Pahi. My clans is, I would say, Yate Shae Deanna Pahi Yanishia. Kia Ani Nishlin, Tachitni Bashishchi, Tambahe Dashache, Todachitni Dashanala. Like Ethan said, uh, a lot of times Native people will introduce themselves in their language. Usually we do that to like establish kinship and to note if we're related and just to build community that way. I am a Navajo from the Windorock, Arizona, originally. I graduated from Brigham Young University last year with a major in environmental science and a minor in American Indian Studies, and I'm happy to be here. Yate she Ariana Tsapahi Anishia, Hanalahni Nishla, Tachini Bashishin, Kentachini Dashache, Do Torichini Dashanele. Again, my name's Ariana Tsapahi. I go by she, her pronouns. I'm studying business management here at UVU, and I'm from Winter Rock, Arizona as well. Um, just kind of going back to what both Ethan and Dion said, but we introduce ourselves to kind of establish kinship, but we already know that we're related, so that's fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> if we were to do this to someone that we didn't know our relationship to, that is kind of like the reason why we introduce ourselves to kind of just say, yeah, this is where I come from. These are my ancestors and I welcome you into my space. Okay, Ethan. So we grew up on the reservation. What was it like for you? To compare both Utah and Arizona, I'd say it back at home, my home, it's really like a scary place to compare from to here. It's not really a safe, like, place to live at neighborhoods they're all run down they don't really take care of uh houses it's really like really just dead there there's no like big buildings no nothing there's barely like any grocery stores and you have to drive like 30 minutes just to go to a good place or an hour but being at home is home and i like home and it's better than here mm-hmm. sometimes sure i want to go back and be over there and just hang out with family but me and Ariana grew up in, uh, it was, it's called, uh, Red, Red Lake Road. There's a lot of, like, gangs and stuff you don't want to see as a kid. It's not very comforting to be outside and have fun like yeah. everybody else does here. You can't go out anywhere, basically. You have to, like, lock your doors, lock your gates, everything. And it's just hard to have fun without some weirdo walking across the street and looking at you different. Yeah, like, it, it was really weird for me to come up here and then... Just, again, to, like, compare the reservation and here, it's, like, I see so many people just, like, walking the streets on the reservation and, like, to have a guy walk by our house and he would carry a sword with him. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, like, really interesting just to compare the reservation and here. Like, it's so different. That was what we grew up with. So seeing it here, I'm just, I worry. (laughs) Yeah, like, sometimes, like, it's in shock where, like, I could just go to the, the the gas station and pick up some chips here. But over there, I have to, I have to watch out for all these people. You can't do anything, really. Dion, I know you didn't grow up on the reservation, but you were very close to the reservation. You visited a lot. So what was your experience like being on the reservation and then, well, being here in Utah and then going back to the reservation and then having to come back to Utah? Like, what was what was that like? Growing up, 
basically all of my family lived on the res at that time. So whenever we would go visit family, we'd go to the res. And I felt like when I was little, I felt like the res was home, but I knew my house was in Provo. Mm. So when I was at my grandparents or I was at my aunt and uncle's or even your guys' house, like it was comforting to know that I was with family, to be able to see the mountains, the mesas, to see all that stuff. But then to also know that I didn't stay there or I didn't have to stay there. Mm -hmm. So it was this thing of being able to get taught my traditions, get taught my culture without having to, I feel like, experience the hardships of living on the res or of living and experiencing what colonization had done mm-hmm. to our homelands, you know? And I I definitely think my experience is not similar to a lot of natives. I know a lot of people who just live in Provo or just live off the res and don't visit their family often and they're still trying to like reconnect with their culture and trying to like get back into learning about their traditions. But me and Erin, we were taught that when we were little. My grandparents taught us, Grandma Kitty, Great Grandma Sam. We have all these other people who have taught us these things, but we have never been, I felt like stuck in these hardships that a lot of res families are stuck in. I feel like it's kind of interesting to talk to people because a lot of times you'll get a lot of different perspectives of like people living on the res. Mm -hmm. Because I know some people who live on the res and they have no idea about any traditions (laughs) or anything with the culture. But yet they live there their whole life. And then I know people who are born on like an urban land and they're an urban native who know more about their culture but they never actually got to practice any of it i think kind of just going off of what dion said but i think it was like the opposite for me and ethan it 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 really is interesting to see like the different education systems that we've gotten like oh yeah yeah like education wise i When I was in high school anyways, they taught us a lot about Native American history. We never really got American history. Our American history was like actually (laughs) American, like Native American history. Mm -hmm. And then I come to school, I take my first American government class thinking that I'd actually get the American history but no they didn't say anything they about what the natives have done they um yeah the books are just really different yeah they talked about world war ii and i always get so triggered when it comes to world war ii because the navajo people were actually the ones to save america or the u.s in world war ii straight up because of our language like our entire lives our ancestors lives we were always taught don't speak navajo don't speak Mm -hmm. in your language we'd get beaten we'd get hit we'd get punished for speaking in our language and it's so sad that that was like what our history was just for the u.s and for the government to be like you know what we're gonna actually piggyback off of your language 
we want you guys to speak it, but for the benefit of us. And the thing too is like <laughs> our people were so proud. Like yeah. we were so proud to get asked that. Like we were so proud to serve our country. And we we didn't question anything about it. And so when it happened, it was like this amazing story to any Native person. And being like, whoa, like the Navajo people were the ones who literally saved the U.S. from World War II. But you don't get that in history books. And our language is a dying language. So growing up, our parents wanted us to learn Navajo because they never got to learn it. Their parents were kind of, again, forced to not speak that language, and our parents didn't want that for us. They wanted us to learn the Navajo language and be able to share our culture and practice these dances and perform these songs. And so coming up here to Utah and being able to perform for people, it it's very powerful. Like, we feel all these different feelings. Like, I, I don't know about you guys, but... I definitely sometimes get really emotional when performing because I feel like the empowerment of our ancestors, they they fought so hard for us to get this life that we have now. When we were growing up, our grandma wanted us to, to learn how to learn how to speak English in a proper yeah. way. She didn't want us to speak Navajo because she knew one day that we'd be able to like go off the reservation and we had to talk like yeah, so actually regularly. that that is really a really good point. So our parents wanted us to learn Navajo because they never got to learn it. But when when you speak this language, you get kind of an accent afterwards, like an English accent. And we call it a res accent. Yeah. And it's just something that like a lot of native people kind of get, like it's it's really strong. So our grandma she would make us pronunciate things correctly because she didn't want people to make fun of us for our accent. Yeah. And so nowadays the accent's cool. Like natives <laughs> they they run with that. And Navajo is like a, a really hard language to learn. It's one of the hardest. It's one of the hardest. Yeah, yeah, one of the hardest languages to learn. Yeah, we don't we don't have textbooks like everybody else. Yeah. No. We just had to learn from the wise people. When did you guys yourselves realize like oh my gosh I'm native I think I learned when I was native is when the first time I moved out here like literally nobody asked me that question what what ethnicity are you like nobody ever asked me that until I moved up here yeah and I get that commonly now whenever I go and it's just like oh I don't know it's just the thing that I'm that I am yeah it it's insane the fact that people don't know natives still exist. I guess for me anyways, I think like non-native students, um, when they find out that I'm native, the first question they always ask is, are you getting free tuition? Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, you, you got your, your schooling paid for, right? You're only here because your school paid for it. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not true. Like, I, I very much have to pay for school just like you. Uh -huh. I'm like, the only difference is, at least for the Navajo people, is that we get in-state tuition. We get considered in-state, so we get the in-state tuition price. But no, my college but tuition... But that's just because your tribe is in the state. Exactly. And so, no, 
I do not get a full ride scholarship to be here. I have very much have to pay for schooling just like everyone else. But I think the thing that like made me realize that I was native is when everyone kept asking me if I was Mexican. I was <laughs> like, I'm not. And they were like, oh, native? What, like, what's Navajo? And I was like, oh. Nava. Navajo. They always say Navajo. And I'm like, you guys, what? You don't know what that is? Like, that was the thing that, like, got me. So every time, anywhere I go, people always mistake me as being Mexican. And so I'm just like, okay, it's, people don't know that natives still exist. And they just, like, automatically assume. Well, you know what my parents did? Every class we had, they would always come in and we would do a whole presentation about being Navajo. Mm. And we would make fry bread for our classroom. And we'd be like, all right, this is what's actually what we're doing. We're establishing it Because we had Utah studies or like you learn about your your state. Mm -hmm. So in Utah, everybody learned about Navajos and what other tribes were in the Utah territory. Mm Mm-hmm which included us, and so my parents, they would come in to make sure it was getting taught right, and they would teach them. Wow. And though I would be embarrassed, I'm glad they did it, because after that, like, nobody nobody was, like, asking me questions. If anything, they were like, that's so cool, Dion, that you get to do all this stuff. And, yeah. <laughs> Whoa, I didn't know that you guys do this, and wait, have you ever eaten sheep and stuff? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good. It's weird for people to be like, "Oh, what the heck? You guys cut sheep's? That's yeah. weird." Yeah, you guys butcher. Yeah. The thing too that like freaks me out is like, you kind of as at least as a native, you have to kind of make sure you're representing yourself, well, your people correctly. Well, and I thought that was interesting about you guys learning um, the English pronunciations of things instead of having to have like the slang or different things like that and I think that is the like the thing that my grandpa my Che taught us was learn education learn the way that the white man does it so that you can do it better yeah or that you know how to (laughs) navigate outclass them yeah exactly yeah so that you can surpass them and bring that home basically yeah see that that's the thing is like you kind of have to do better we got represent two yourself. worlds we're living in mm-hmm. you have to represent yourself correctly because you have to represent when, others well not only that but like you you have to represent yourself correctly because this person that you meet it's like this is this may or may not be the, the only one. time they ever meet a native person uh-huh and so if you're rude to them and you come off as, like, this mean person, they're going to have that perspective for the rest of their life. They're like, yeah. oh, yeah, I met this one Navajo girl, and she was completely rude. Uh-huh. And so now they're going to keep that idea of what a Navajo woman is supposed to be like. 
So like Gary was talking about, stories can either work to obscure a group, like in the case of the Navajo Code Talkers, whose whole contribution directly impacted the outcomes of World War II, and that obscuring can make the problems of that group invisible, or stories can serve to make them hyper-visible, which is what happened in the case of the LDS Placement Program here in Utah. Now, the Indian Placement Program, also called the Lamanite Placement Program, was operated across the Midwest, throughout Utah, but also in Washington, Idaho, California, and a few other spots, by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from 1947 until 1996. Now, the program worked by removing Native children from their schools and families on the reservation and placing them into member families that would quote-unquote foster them, baptize them, and educate them in the ways of the church. Now, those ways worked to teach those children that they were not Native, but instead that they were Lamanites, who, in the Book of Mormon, are portrayed largely as being brutish savages cursed with dark skin. The official objective of the program was to, quote, provide Lamanite children with educational, spiritual, social, and cultural opportunities that would contribute to their leadership development, close quote. A church authority, Elder Spencer W. Kimball, who was the chairman of the church's Committee on Indian Relationships, claimed that natives who participated in the program were gradually turning lighter skin, becoming, quote, white and delightsome, close quote, saying that, quote, the Indian children in the home placement program in Utah are often lighter than their brothers and sisters on the reservation, close quote. Importantly, this program was based on a story about native children that painted them not only as something that they were not, but it painted the church members that abducted those children as selfless saviors. Now, these children weren't abandoned, unwanted, or orphan kids who needed a family. Those kids had families. And during the decades that the program was in operation, an estimated 50,000 children were put into this program, which had the devastating effect of destroying families, weakening tribal sovereignty, and inflicting a cultural genocide. The effects of this program and others like it throughout the U.S. and the world are still being felt by Native families today. Plus, even though that program officially ended in 97, Native peoples have a particularly extensive history of family separations in the form of placement programs like the one we just talked about, boarding schools, and other systems that work against keeping Native families together. Now, a piece of legislature meant to address that issue is the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, which is a federal law that passed in 1978 after people started noticing that an unreasonably high number of Indian children were being removed from their families by public and private welfare agencies and placed in non-Indian families. Now, approximately 75 to 80 percent of Indian families living on reservations had lost at least one child to the foster care system before the law passed, so ICWA works to keep Indian children with Indian families that come from a shared or at least a similar tribal background so that those children aren't forced away from their culture or community without the tribal government or the community itself having a say. Now, unfortunately, a Supreme Court case called Bracken v. Holland, which claims the ICWA is unconstitutional, is working directly to challenge tribal sovereignty. The specifics are super complicated to explain, but the big detail to know about this case is that some of the major stakeholders in the case decision involve the state of Texas and major corporate oil companies whose access to natural resources are severely limited by tribal sovereignty. Now, attacking the ICWA is only the latest way that tribal sovereignty, or, you know, the right to self-determination, has been directly under attack. And I think it's really easy to hear all these stories with those dates from 20 to 30 years ago and think it's all over and fixed, but this is happening right now. I think stories are like living things. They grow by being told, and because we tell stories all the time, sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that we got some kind of power over stories and how they work. But sometimes they become bigger than us, and then people get told by stories instead of stories getting told by people. And sometimes when one story about a group of people becomes bigger than the stories those people tell to and about themselves, it's not just foolish, it's actually violent and has real lived consequences. Now, for natives, a major example of this is the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women. Indigenous women are disproportionately at risk of being abducted, getting kidnapped, going missing, or getting murdered. Now there's a wide range of reasons, including but not limited to the fetishization of indigenous women, presence of corporate entities on indigenous land that helps keep grown single men around the reservation, and a bunch of other stuff for why that may happen. 
But more than that, it's much less likely that anything will be done about those instances of murder, abduction, and abuse. There's also a range of factors that play into that, like authorities not believing indigenous communities when they report women missing, missing women or found women being reported under the wrong race, etc. that play into why people don't even know about those cases of missing women. The whole issue is represented by MMIW, which is an acronym that stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Now, MMIW is not only a public organization that works to bring visibility to the issue, but it also has come to represent an indigenous-led grassroots movement that began with First Nations women and families in Canada and has now expanded across the world as indigenous peoples worldwide have begun to demand justice for a series of trends they've noticed for generations. Now, I was able to get an interview with someone who has done quite a bit of missing and murdered work, and she's about to come on here real quick and tell us some stories about her experience coming into the movement and her own personal connections to the work. Now, this was a virtual interview, so heads up if the audio quality changes a bit in the next clip. We did our best, but we did have a bit of technical difficulties. My name is Dene Shantine. I am born to the Dene Nation. I am also Korean on my father's side. My pronouns are she and her. Happy to be here today. Thank you. Yay. Thank you so much for coming on. I read online that you work with missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do there and what led you to that work? Yeah, so I also run MMI Who is Missing, which is a mutual aid organization. We spread awareness and educate across the nations and tribal nations uh, about this really big system of violence that perpetuates the missing and murdered crisis on Indigenous people. What led you, I guess, to like the organizing space and and specifically to the organizations that you currently work with or that you have worked with? What led me to the work was um, my own process of the violence and the violence on my family members and the mm-hmm. relatives and my community member community members. Uh, my auntie was murdered when she was nineteen years old, and um, That's horrible. so I. I grew up with the story of my auntie Priscilla mm-hmm. and how that incident happened. Um, you know, she, like many other indigenous women, had children. And this violence just leads, you know, to many different fractures in our communities and in our homes. Um, that was really what kind of brought me into the work, um, is knowing that my family needed to heal, I needed to heal from this act of violence. But then everything else just started flooding in with other relatives and realizing that my auntie's story is so much larger. It's not isolated to just her, but it's it's really a big issue um, in our communities. I think you, you mentioned it a little bit right now. What guides your activism and what can other community organizers learn from having an Indigenous lens on activism? Specifically with missing and murdered, I believe that everybody needs to understand that these stories of the missing and murdered violence, whether they're old or new, historical or recent traumas, we need to understand the experience of the victims and the victims' families and how that stems out into our families, our communities and our nations and how we're able to really live beautiful and productive lives. Um, under colonization. And so with this perpetuated violence, the public really needs to understand that this is an ongoing and continuation of genocide and that historical oppression on Indigenous people. Mm. 
it's all connected. It's a violence that continues to be maintained and endured through these systems. These organizations that you're a part of and that you've kind of, and these and the causes that you're organize, organizing towards are like predominantly Indigenous-led. What has your experience been as an Indigenous organizer in causes that are not led by predominantly Indigenous leaders? You know, I think that um, non-Indigenous leaders, even in a policy level at the state level, within law enforcement, the FBI, healthcare services, they are not trauma-informed in the sense that they're taking into historical context what is happening in our communities. Right. Um, because there's a lack of health care with Indigenous people, because there's a lack of justice, because violence takes place on tribal lands and also within urban settings, the jurisdictional processes get really complicated to reach a sense of justice for the families by their perpetrators. Because this crisis is so huge and on different parts of um, indigenous territories and within more colonized urban spaces, it is really hard to communicate what this violence actually is to the public. Right. And I think because of that lack of awareness and of those systems of approach, approaches that were designed to suppress this kind of information, mm. the data is so underfunded, underreported, and that's maintained by all these systems and it's maintained right. for a purpose. I think it's important for everyone to understand that these systems were intentionally designed to not address this violence. Instead, they perpetuate the violence even further. And a lot of Indigenous advocates, coalitions, are trying to undo those systems so that they work for us because this crisis is immediate in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. There are new cases every single day. I think right now, like, Indigenous organizations and advocates, the coalitions, are doing everything that they can to address this in a very appropriate way that is Indigenous-led, that is based off the stories of survival, that is victim-centered. We definitely advocate to listen to Indigenous people and have give them the full sovereignty and guidance on how to address the situation because we are the experts of our own realities and traumas. Right. And it's really important to include us in those conversations. Actually, it's not important. Important. It's vital. Um, it's essential. I, I, I appreciate that a lot. I think what, what kind of changes would you like to see specifically if you're talking about how can non-Indigenous peoples support Indigenous causes and center Indigenous voices in their activism? You know, I think that non-Indigenous people who are interested in supporting, they already have an understanding of their their settlement in their own histories mm. and their responsibility to undo a lot of the violence that their ancestors contributed to and then their placement occupation on indigenous land. And so I think it's a, it is a responsibility for all non-indigenous people who are occupying indigenous stolen land to um, really pay attention to the needs of our communities. Right. But even beyond the missing and murdered issue, I think just by starting to listen and to really understand the historical context would be a great way to start. And then for non-Indigenous people to be really committed throughout their lifetime mm. to supporting these issues, right. either by supporting policy, electing Indigenous folks to um, in positions of power, but most of all, 
we already know as indigenous people how to address this crisis like we've been screening it for years and years and years and like i was saying earlier we are the experts of our own realities and traumas and we have very specific ways of healing through these things and those need to be trusted and given the funding the resources right all of those things to address this issue in a sovereign way for real like giving part of your income consistently to the coalitions, to mutual aid organizations that are really helping families right now go through these really traumatic times and often with no resources and guidance. You know, we see that a lot in our communities. I see that a lot with almost every case. With MMI Who is Missing, we're involved with several different families right now who have had loved ones taken away from them. A lot of them are grandmothers who are taking care of the children of their murdered daughter. Hmm. Going through these court hearings, having to be a caretaker for these children, and also just not having enough resources, therapy, counseling, advocates, even the searches are underfunded because police and the jurisdictional issues, the FBI, because there's a backload of so many different cases, all these systems are overwhelmed mm -hmm. in addressing it. And so families right now are really having to do these things all by themselves. It is a matter of life and death. Like it does perpetuate so much more trauma and fatigue on the families when those systems of support are not there. And it often re-traumatizes them and really affects their health throughout their the entirety of their lives. Yeah, and it seems like it's something that becomes generational, right? It, it continues to impact mm -hmm. communities, not just not just in the moment, but then, you know, children who are raised by grandmothers have to be explained why. Um, and you even have mentioned mm -hmm. your own experience of, of kind of being followed by the story of your auntie who was murdered. Mm -hmm. I do want to go back really quick to a word that you used. You said sovereignty. I've heard I've heard this this term thrown around in a lot of discussions on uh, indigenous-led movements. Can you explain mm -hmm. a little bit about what sovereignty means to you personally, and uh, and then maybe what it means in the broader context of, of indigenous movement? Sure. Um, when I think about sovereignty as a survivor myself of trauma, I think about sovereignty in a way of, in the Diné perspective, justice is not is non-existent until the victim is healed. Mm and their relatives are healed. And so when I think about sovereignty with this particular and big complex issue, I think about the victim first, what happened to the victim, and them being able to guide their own healing mm. and what justice means for them. Mm. Just like tribal nations and different com indigenous communities they all have different ways and methodologies in which they want to guide that healing or even prosecute or how they reach a sense of justice. Everyone has different ceremonies. When so much power has been taken away from you, mm -hmm. it's really, really important that we guide our own healing and our own sense of justice in this process. And it needs to be fully honored and trusted, funded and supported. That's what I think about with sovereignty. You know, I think about my own body. Like, I have sovereignty over my own body. Um, this body is mine. It houses my spirit. It houses many stories. Um, and then I think about land. 
and how I'm connected to land. And land should be sovereign. Land should have its own voice. Land has a way of taking care of itself and all those other relations. And the same with tribal communities, that power will really restore and extend out to all different relatives. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think you're, you're talking about autonomy and it's but it's not just about like isolation of leaving these groups alone it's also about being very deliberate in restoring access to resources and uh and Mm -hmm. seems like one of the big problems you were describing earlier was the fact that communities are already describing their issues um they're just not being platformed or not really being heard i guess by groups that Mm -hmm. that do have access to resources so i think sometimes Mm -hmm. you know at least what came to my mind in the beginning before i started to learn a little bit more about sovereignty was like Oh, well, it's it's, you know, about independence and, you know, leaving tribes alone to kind of do what they what they believe is best. And I think that's part of it. But it's also it's not just about ignoring. There's there's a very deliberate like kind of tuning in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think about sovereignty cannot be granted right now in the way that we work as people and individuals, unless there is also healing on the oppressive side. Right. Okay. Because we are so controlled and confined by these systems of violence that don't work for us, that don't serve us, but also continually harm us. Mm. Unless that's healed and put into context in policy and legislation, that simultaneously needs to happen while also consulting the tribes on how exactly they want to be supported because there are reparations due. There Mm -hmm. are so many ways that we've been taken from. We should, as Indigenous people, have all the resources to heal from colonization, um, but we just don't have that. I think continuing to push for those efforts and that kind of support, but always understanding that it has to be from the perspective of the tribes or individuals, if you want to like scale it down, to, to guide that process. I think this might be our last question, but you know we've we've talked about what frustrates you as an indigenous organizer and as a as a woman organizer. But in your organizing efforts, what like observations or results have you had that make you feel hopeful about the organizing that you've done and that is being done by others in the community? There are several different things that like I've personally seen that make me feel better in the in the work. One, I think the attention on this is is growing. Right now, there's really, truly nothing being done to address this crisis. Mm. Um, in fact, in the past couple years, the rates of missing and murdered have gone up so much during the pandemic. Mm. The world is shifting in a lot of ways. There's the climate stuff that is going on. Um, our homelands are being continually being destroyed. Um, so this violence is ongoing. And it's not stopping. So I don't think that there's a lot of hope there it's just a lot of urgency um a lot of us are dedicating so much of our time energy and love and our capacities to prevent this from happening you know we worry about the the future that our children will inherit in this if we don't act swiftly and really push for these changes and just because there is a lot of media happening not a lot of media there's some media compared to no media before Mm -hmm. even the media perpetuates this violence as well like they're not being victim centered oftentimes Mm -hmm. when someone goes missing they don't name their specific tribe and the same thing with um, documenting these cases tribal nations aren't able to 
keep track of the individuals or keep track of data because often the victims are misclassified Mm. um, under different races. And so there's that data issue in itself in understanding the crisis. And even in these colonial narratives, data is one of the most important things because it's a colonial language. If you don't exist in data, you don't exist in policy or funding. You're not recognized as people. You're non-existent, which is a continuation of Indigenous erasure. Now, Danae was such a well-spoken, like thoroughly intimidating person to talk to, but she was so genuine in her responses in the short time that we spoke that a lot of what she said stuck with me personally. Now, I'm an English major. For as long as I can remember, story has been important to me, and there's something really important to me about receiving story from someone with lived experience like Danae does, and like all of our interviewees do. It's a responsibility not only to hold space for that story in the first place by asking and then listening, but then to seek out story after and to continue building my personal awareness of the issues we're talking about. Now, we're just scratching the surface here, interviewing on only a few Diné and asking them about their own experiences, but there's so many more perspectives out there, and it's hard to know where to start sometimes, and it can be a little bit overwhelming, but it all starts with story. Now, UVU offers a Native American literature course that explores the work of Native authors across the U.S. called English 357G, and it's taught by Professor Kamayo Pili in the English department. When I took that class last year, we all worked together to create an overarching narrative that described the spirit of a lot of the literature we discussed. And two of the things that I really remember about that narrative are creative response and survivance. Now, creative response describes the way the marginalized, or in this case, Native peoples, respond to the systemic violence of settler colonialism. That response can come in the form of poetry, song, dance, art, literature, etc. But the point is that the people continue. They survive and they dance and they sing and they hurt and they mourn, but they aren't destroyed by that violence. I want to throw back a bit to something that Danae said in her interview about Native people still being able to live beautiful and productive lives under colonization. Now, to me, that is creative response. The things Native people do and create in the face of violence that never stops. Now, the second bit, survivance, is an academic term used in American Indian studies, and it describes the way Native people respond to oppression using a combination of survival and resistance. Now, here's survival. Survival itself, especially for a group that is talked about like they no longer exist, or like they can only exist as helpless victims of extreme violence, becomes a form of resistance. More than this, the idea of survival is continuous, like something that's happening now. So instead, survivance frames colonialism as a process instead of like a one-time event. Now, I think sometimes in spaces of social impact, we start to form really specific understandings of what organizing and advocacy looks like. But the truth is that organizing looks different for every issue, culture, and context that demands it. And sometimes it looks like just continuing in the face of everyday violence. How can non-natives help? I think for me, in all my 24 years of life, I would say do their own research. Mm. I think a lot of times they look to Native people to educate them and to tell them certain things. And I think it's also very important. You know, I mean, I go out and I tell different people to do these different programs. I'm the one who's presenting on these different topics. So I am also doing research for them. But it would be so cool to see non-Native people do research and to want to know about these things instead of having to wait for a Native person to come into their life and to educate them. And I feel like if you want to know if we still live in teepees, look it up. You'll find it, you know. We don't <laughs> yeah. live in teepees anymore. Um, find out if we still wear moccasins all the time. You can Google that, you know. We and still I have, think uh, outhouses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we still live you know? in Hogan. 
Right. Like, do we still live in these things? And and to also know that there's 500 plus federally recognized tribes. Mm -hmm. So we are all Navajo. That's only one tribe out of 500 and something other tribes. And that's not to mention that they're state recognized as well as other native groups who aren't governmentally recognized. Mm -hmm. So like coming to one person and asking them if they live in a teepee, you may not even be speaking to somebody whose traditional families lived in teepees, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think just doing your own research and wanting to learn about different people, it's it goes a long way. You know, just getting into the work that we're doing and not being afraid to ask questions as well. Something that students could be aware of is that there are Native students in your universities, mm-hmm. in your classrooms, and, you know, maybe we are a little shy. Maybe we're quiet. Maybe yeah, we're not loud, you know, <laughs> but we could also always use a friend. Yeah. And I feel like that would be really cool is if somebody just was like, hey, can I sit here? You know, like just reach out to those people. And and they always say that, like, just reach out to people around you. Somebody could always use a friend. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be like someone sit next to me and be like, hey, can you tell me your life experience about being Native American? Yeah. You know, like that would be weird. <laughs> but like just being able to like get to know me as me and to to actually want to get to know me and then find out my background and then find out that, oh, she's really cool and her culture is really cool, too. You know? Yeah. And to not be scared to approach us. I feel like a lot of people <laughs> have this like, oh, they're native and do I have to like do a certain thing in order yeah. to get to know them? I'm like, no, please just say hi to me, you know? <laughs> yeah. We're all Navajo and we all come from the Navajo tribe. So our perspective is very different from someone who grew up in Eastern tribes or even the Midwest tribes. We all have different experiences and we're just talking about our experiences growing up and what that was like. That's what my dad says all the time. Yeah. He says, educate instead of getting mad. Exactly. Which is so hard. But in the end, it's like, well, then, though, you just taught somebody something new Uh instead of getting mad and Mm -hmm. then making their day weird and then them having a bad taste of natives. And it's just better to educate, I think. Exactly. Which I'm I'm happy that, like, I'm happy to do that, especially here on campus, like Mm -hmm. being able to share with students like oh yeah this is what that is and that's something that I do with the Native Wolverine Association um I've been like the president the vice president also just a member throughout the years that I've been here there are multiple different events going on throughout the year we have the powwow which is probably one of the hardest events to put on um what again i'm thankful for like being able to be a part of it because last year my family helped out so much i had my family come up from the reservation to help organize the powwow the the native club really did like help out my my college journey i guess and i think i spend most of my time in the multicultural center in general same yeah, like I just, <laughs> I sit in my advisor's office. I just sit in his office, just chill, see all the other students come in, um, joke around with them, 
It's like we created this community and this home for students off the reservation. Like we created a home and a space for them. And it's been really nice to to connect with other Native students and to just talk with them, talk about shared experiences and be like, oh my gosh, do you remember when like our grandparents used to do this? Or again, talking in our res accent. Like it just takes a weight off. Yeah. It, it's something about it that just makes it feel comforting mm-hmm. and at ease. Yeah, because you can relate to other people. Why do you Why do you guys think that it's important for natives to organize? Uh, I know Dion has her Jingle Just project that she does with her family that she kind of like travels and does. Mm-hmm. And Ethan, you do a lot of your photography. Mm-hmm. Um, you help out native musicians take photos for them so how do you guys organize well how i organize stuff like that well there's people there are people who don't don't visualize clearly what we're seeing or what we're saying as a photographer i've always wanted to go back home and i just wanted to take pictures of people just sitting sitting around doing their thing Mm -hmm. and uh there's kids that i want to that i grew up with and i want to take pictures of them because I know they have value and they have they have uh, art they want to share, mm-hmm. and it would be nice just to show everybody around campus or show everybody around the world what uh, the res really looks like and things that I've seen growing up, and then I would I would persevere it and just show people how it is, and then just hear what they have to think about it. I really just want to help those kids that that just feel like they're they're not they're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. I just want to show their art, show what they're doing, and yeah, just go along with that. I think it's important for people to know the perspectives of natives and that we all don't have the same perspective. Just like with us three, we have very different backgrounds, but we all came from the same family and we're all Navajo, but yet it's very different. And I think getting to know um, different perspectives is really helpful in trying to learn about a different group of people. And I think it's important for um, these perspectives to be heard. Like Ethan was saying how he just wants to take pictures of his friends and just let people know what it's like on the res. And I think that that's really important. And so when we do our work, we just try to let people know that they are, that all of us have different experiences and whether or not we get five people to come to our presentations or we get a thousand people, still we're trying to get it out there that there are Native people still here. We are still doing things. We're doing cool things and come find us. This episode was far from comprehensive and there are so many points in our original outline that we really wanted to hit, but we really just couldn't because the whole thing is just so huge. I mean, I'm proud that there were many great stories about hope and change and culture. Then we got to hear some of those really dope ones today, but I sometimes think that we forget that our oppressors can use stories too to hide systems of oppression like racism, patriarchy, ableism, etc., and even work to justify those systems. And the scary thing is that if you don't challenge those stories, you might end up telling them. But something great, the stories that get told start with people. Now, story starts with us in a big way that a 
wrong story stops getting told is when we start telling a new one. And this time, it can be one that centers instead of speaks over the group that is being talked about. Now, I know I say this every time, but this project really couldn't be done without a whole group of people behind it. So big thanks to all of our interviewees, Ari, Ethan, Dion, and Danae, for sharing their time and their stories. Now, thanks to Professor Kyle Kamayopili for teaching me a bunch of what I share with y'all today, and then for helping me think through about how to talk about it all. Thanks to Meg Singer and the NWA for the storytelling night, and to the flautist Ty Allison for letting us use the recording in today's episode. Thanks to Kai, one of our advisors at the center, and my friend Alex for helping me brainstorm and listening to me talk it all out. Thanks also to Danny, Kenna, and Ari for their help with research and script writing. Thanks to Braden and Jaden, our sound editors, and Sophie, our sound engineer. Y'all are really tight. And thanks a bunch to y'all for listening. So if we said anything today that y'all want to know more about, we got citations and ways to get involved, and even a list of suggested readings in the show notes. Now, the Center for Social Impact is located in the Wellness Building in SC105, right across from the ballroom. We got events every Thursday, so follow us on Instagram at UVU Social Impact to find out what we got going on. Now, we release episodes here monthly, so drop by next month and give us a listen again. I'm Hannah, and y'all were listening to Critical Mass Podcast.